So we are in this series in December. Last week we launched it. We're in it again tonight called Overshadowed. Somebody say Overshadowed. When is the last time you felt enveloped by the shadow of the Almighty? When, when is the last time you felt surrounded by the power of the Most High? When is the last time you were overshadowed by your God? Psalm 91 reads this way. I'm just gonna, some of you just need to close your eyes and let these verses just wash. I'm not putting it on the screen on purpose because I, I want you to hear it. I want you to marinate it. And I'm not going to read all of Psalm 91. If you've never read all of Psalm 91, you should because it's powerful. But listen to how it starts. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Let me read it again. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap, protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. He is faith, his faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the errors that fly by the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in the darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. The last verse I want to read here is verse 7. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Come on, the shadow of the Almighty. This language is very important to us as we introduced last week. Let's do a little review to catch people up who weren't with us last week. We got into Luke chapter 1 and the story where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And then we dug around where the, an angel is sent to Joseph. But here in Gabriel's announcement to Mary, he uses the phrase that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I believe that he was instructed by God to use that language to mirror the language of Psalm 91, which Mary would have been familiar with. Growing up in a Jewish home, the Psalms would have been ever-present throughout her whole life. And so God's speaking to her in a way that she can understand. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. But we saw as we looked into this chapter that there are some other promises there. Promises that many of us are familiar with. If you've been around church for any amount of time, there's promises in there that you're like, of course I believe that. The one is the Lord is with you. He says that to Mary. Another one is the word of God will never fail you. He says that to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. He says that to Mary. Many of us are like, of course I believe those things about me. But my question is, do you believe that you are a candidate for the power of the Most High to overshadow you? Because I believe that that promise is just as much for us as the other three. This word to overshadow is a unique word because it only happens just a very few times. I think it's about four times in the New Testament. It's episkiazo. It's used by both Matthew, Mark, and Luke to describe the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration that settled down on Peter, James, and John where they saw Jesus fully revealed in all of his glory, right? There was a, a, a Moses and Elijah appeared to them. It says that, that that cloud on the top of that mountain, Epischiazzo, it overshadowed them. They were completely enveloped by it. And then we don't see it again until the book of Acts. 
And we have this incredible story that Peter, as he would walk through towns post-birth of the church, post the resurrection of Christ, Christianity's taken the world by storm. There's been this incredible outpouring of supernatural power on the lives of these early apostles. And it says that as Peter would walk down the street, his, his shadow would overshadow people laying in sickness and they would be instantly healed. Episkiazo to be overshadowed. Whenever we see this idea of being overshadowed in Scripture, there are supernatural things that take place in the shadow of the Almighty. When the power of the Most High overshadows us, there are supernatural things that happen in us. Do We believe in therapy here at this church. We believe in counseling here at this church. We believe in modern medicine here. At the, we believe in all of those things. I, I even love that we're doing this series in, in Mental Health Awareness Month because there are practical things, as Pastor David talked about, that you and I need to do for, to, to be mentally healthy. There, there's battles that need to be fought. There's, there's practical things, steps that we need to take. Those things are important. But you know what else is important? Is that there should be an expectation that the power of the Most High can overshadow us. There's, there's work that we need to do, but there's also healing that God can bring in our life. It's not a false choice. We need both together. Matthew 28, 20 reads this way. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given to you and be sure of this. This is where this great promise that the Lord is always with us. Jesus himself says, I am with you always even to the end of the age, Jesus is ever-present. We believe this as devoted followers of Christ. We, we believe in the promise that the Bible will never fail us. The, we believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Listen to Psalm 119, 160. reads this way, The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. The word of the Lord will never fail you. It's a promise you can stand on. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Where do we get this? Why is this for us? Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We believe that the Holy Spirit can come upon us and empower us. We believe in these promises. Will you believe in this other promise? Will you believe, right? These things weren't said to you and me, Right? These, these, these things were said to other people. But we understand that one of the reasons why he said it to them is because one day we were going to read it here, and it's a promise that we're supposed to co-op for ourselves. Will, will you believe that the promise that he spoke to Mary, that the power of the Most High will overshadow you, will you believe also that that promise is for you? Luke 1.35, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Do you believe that God wants to burst some things in your life that are not presently there, that you cannot find this side of heaven, that you cannot manufacture, you cannot build, you cannot work, you cannot, cannot create? There is a creative power in God. He wants to birth things in us that prepare us and, and, and posture us and position us to fulfill our divine destiny. And our divine purpose. Last week we talked about how 
And I shared some of my own story as a young father struggling with anger and how when we struggle with anger, there's a, there, there, there's a power from the Most High that needs to overshadow us that can begin to bring about change in our life. I talked about family history last week. If you haven't seen that, if you feel like you've got some family history that's just got a hold of you, you can't break free from it. As you look back into your story and you think, because my father and father's father and so forth and so on, or my mother and my mother's mother and so forth and so on, they did this, that, and the other, I, my, my future is set for me through the lives that they live. Come on, that's a lie. God wants to help you break free from your family history. He wants to write a new family history that starts with you. If that's you, then you need to find the power of the Most High overshadowing you. Tonight I want to talk about this idea of how we can find ourselves in this life feeling unfit, unwanted, and unsuited. Unfit, unwanted, and unsuited. You see, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, if, you were to, if we were to take the time to reread what we read last week in Luke chapter 1, there is this sense in her, you've got the wrong person. And we talked about last week, we dug into the genealogy and why I believe Joseph, I think Joseph was reluctant, as I shared last week, not, not because he didn't believe Mary, but because he didn't believe in himself. Do, do you, do, are you here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, I know God can use other people, but I'm not sure he can use me. Do, do you feel unfit, unwanted, and unsuited? We tend to define our potential based on what we have done in our past and on who we are not in our present, often leading us to think God could never use us. You want to read it again? I know it's on the screen. We tend to define our potential based on what we have done in our past, right? Mistakes that we have made and on who we aren't in our present, often leading us to think that God could never use us. We're going to dig back around into the genealogy tonight. We're going to look at the genealogy. I'm not going to read it again for the sake of time, but if you want, you can go to Matthew. We joked last week, right, it's the parts of the Bible. When we get in our Bible reading plan that we skip over, it's all the begats of the begats, the begats. But there's, there's truth in these begats. There's truth in these genealogies. There's lessons for us to learn. And when we look at Matthew's genealogy there in chapter 1, we find that there are four women that are present in the genealogy of Jesus. Four women. In fact, as you look at the genealogy of Christ through Joseph, which is what the genealogy of Matthew gives us, there are only five parenthetical clauses in the genealogy, meaning all the names that are there. There's three groups of 14. Of all the names that are there, there are only five parenthetical clauses, meaning that there's some description to specifically identify, to make sure we understand who these people are, but also the way that they are identified is to kind of throw some shade their way. As if Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was saying, I know I've got to write this down, but I feel compelled to say, I'm not sure these people should have been in the genealogy of Christ because they were a little unfit. They really didn't deserve to be there because of who they are and what they did. Again, five parenthetical clauses. We did one of them last night, Jehoiakim, the king, and what that meant, and, 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 and then who, who, who could never be king and what that meant. And then the other four are the ladies. 
Now, there's going to be a slide that's going to pop up with each name, and I'm just going to read a little, a little synopsis if, if you're not familiar with these women and who they are. The first one is Tamar. One of Judah's sons married Tamar and soon died, so another son married her so his brother's name could live on. Now, this was a, a unique and distinct Jewish practice that, that, that if a son married someone and then he were to die before his first son was born so his name could be carried on, it was required by Jewish law that one of his brothers would step in and marry this woman, and then the very first son that's born would take the brother's name, and then the rest of the sons would take his name. And it was their way of making sure that even if you pass, your name could continue on. So a brother steps in, marries Tamar, then that son dies. So he had a third son. Judah was afraid to give his third son to this woman. He's like, There's something, something's not going on here that's right. right? No, we understand this as a father. He's, he's concerned. So he puts her off. He puts her off. He puts her off. So once Tamar realizes that Judah is never going to allow this third son to marry her, to give her a son that's going to carry on the name of now the other's, she disguised herself as a prostitute and lured Judah, the father, in a, into a sexual encounter, resulting in her becoming pregnant. This is in the genealogy of Jesus. Fraud, incest, deceit, and deception. God could have picked any line for Jesus to come through. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't as though once this happened, there was an emergency meeting in heaven where God had to say, we got to start over. We, we, we need a new line because this one's tainted. It's not what he did. Time keeps moving forward. We get to Rahab. The Israelites about ready to move into the promised land. This Canaanite prostitute lived in Jericho at the time of Israel besieged it as they prepared to enter the promised land. We all know the story of Jericho's walls coming, tumbling down. But did you remember that this prostitute aided Israel's spies that Joshua had sent in prior to the battle? She made a deal with the spies that once Israel conquered her city, they would spare her and her family because she had helped them. So here we have an ethnic enemy of Israel with a lewd lifestyle who also betrayed her own people for her own self-interest. Right at the center of the genealogy of Jesus. There was not a crisis meeting number two where God said, it's messed up. His, his line is tainted. These people are unfit to be listed in the genealogy of my son, the Savior of the world. Time keeps moving on. We come to Ruth, the book of Ruth. Interestingly, Ruth marries Boaz, who is the son of Rahab. It's like God's doubling down on this story. So one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible Ruth, of grief and devotion and love and honor is only possible because of the treachery of a Canaanite prostitute. 
So here again we see a Moabite, that's Ruth, who like the Canaanites are a people who are enemies of Israel. And even more so, all of Moab, listen, all of Moab was under a curse by God that's recorded for us in the Old Testament. And in spite, in spite of all of this, Ruth is at the center of Jesus' heritage. I love that the story turns here a little bit because Ruth is in some ways the antithesis of Tamar and Rahab. She's living this noble life. But, but I like the part that mars her is her ethnicity. We, we know a little about that. She, she carries with her an ethnicity that is physically visible through her features and the color of her skin and the way that she talks and the accent of her voice. And she was living amongst the people that looked down on her because of it. How many of you know sometimes you can feel unfit because how other people make you feel because of the color of your skin? Not that we would know anything about that here in America. Time keeps moving forward, and we get to Bathsheba. If Jesus' family history isn't controversial enough, here we go. One of the greatest acts of treachery in all of Scripture is central to the genealogy of Christ. King David sees a married woman bathing on her rooftop and sends for her. When we understand the nature, this is important, when we understand the nature of power dynamics in relationships, especially sexual encounters, I think we can agree that this isn't just adultery, it's rape. Because of what power dynamics are, this is not consensual. King David then arranges for the death of her husband, once learning that Bathsheba is pregnant. She becomes the mother of of Solomon. Here again, treachery at the center of Jesus's heritage. Now we know from the hard work of biblical scholars that these three groups of 14 names that Matthew has neatly placed here to create some prophetic, the uh, poetic flow in his writing. He wanted to be even and worked out. There were some names that were left out, but all those names are available to us. And it's interesting, some of the names he left out are here. We have this woman, Atalia. She was the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. She had some sons. And she had made it her sworn purpose in life to wipe out the entire line of David. How great is that? But yet one of her sons is in the line. I don't think it's a coincidence. Matthew here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And at some point, I think he felt like, I just can't write these names in here. I can't do it because of the treachery of their life. Was he reluctant to even put these names in because he himself felt like they were unfit to be in the story? See, sometimes being unfit is something that we project on ourselves, but sometimes we project it onto other people. Can you relate to these women? Or are there some memories in your past that cause you to feel like God could never use you? 
Do, do you feel unfit? Do you feel unwanted? Do you feel unsuited? Do, do you feel like at some point as you look over the story of your life, it is as though heaven has your application for destiny? has the, the plan and the purpose that God has prepared for you from the foundations of the earth? Do, do you feel like at some point, because of some line you crossed, be, be, because of some ethical or moral line that, that, that you went too far, it is as though, do you have this picture that God has this stamp in heaven and he, he stamped your destiny as unfit and there's no longer a purpose for you? What, what, what I would say to you, if, if you feel that way about yourself, you need something. You, 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 you need the power of the Most High to overshadow you. You, you need an episkiazo moment. You, you need a Mount of Transfiguration encounter. You, you need a Peter's shadow passing you, but not Peter. It's Jesus as he walks by. This, this experience, I believe, that can happen. I shared about how it, one of them happened to me early on in my Christian walk. And I believe that, 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 that many of us can recount for you stories of where we felt like we've been enveloped by the glory of God that did things in us that are unexplainable. If, if you feel unfit because you're, if you bought into the lie that God cannot use you, I, I'm not saying that this is the cure-all. There might be a whole lot of things that you can do, but can I, just, I am confident of this, that there is this encounter that God wants you to have. It is a promise that is for you. Just like the word of the Lord will never fail you. Just like the Lord himself will always be with you. Just like the Holy Spirit can come upon you. That the power of the Most High will overshadow you is a promise for you that can bring about great healing, that can even begin to help you see yourself in a different way, can restore your hope and your faith and belief that God has a destiny for you in spite of your past and in spite of who you don't believe that you are today. He can birth things in you that you cannot birth in yourself. I think Joseph talked about him some last week. He had some family history, but I think even Joseph himself in his present life, I think he struggled with the feeling of being unfit. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Listen to some things that people said about Jesus as he had begun his ministry for why they didn't believe that he could be the Messiah. Now I want to explain that some of these statements are there's, some, there's a depth of meaning in here. It says, they scoffed, he's just the carpenter, which also meant not just something about Jesus, but it also meant something about his father. He's just a carpenter. The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Why? Be, because of what he was and because of what he wasn't according to their traditions. Claire asked me the other day, she's a... Uh, a burgeoning theologian. Come on, Claire. She said, Dad, did you know that maybe Jesus wasn't a carpenter? I said, no, I did not. And this is my job. I should know things like this. And she said, yeah, there's scholars of are beginning to look at the original language and asking the question, did, did, 
did we translate this the right way? It's the Greek word tekton, T-E-K-T-O-N. It can mean carpenter. We're not saying he wasn't, but it is, it is a generic word that was used in Jesus' day that just meant craftsman. And, and, and then as scholars have begun to study, they've begun to realize that Jesus loved metaphors about stones. And there's this question of maybe Jesus wasn't a carpenter. Maybe he was a stonemason. How, how cool would that be? Right? He, 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 he talks about him being the stone that the builders rejected. He talks about Peter, right? He calls him, upon this rock I will build my church. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons ever preached, he talks about your, your life being built upon a firm foundation, upon rock. Maybe he wasn't a carpenter. Maybe he was a stonemason. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what his exact vocation was. What matters in Jesus' day is that he had a vocation, which meant that at some point he had failed out of rabbinical school of training. And if he went to ply his father's trade, it means that Joseph had a vocation, which also meant that at some point Joseph had failed out of rabbinical school of training. So, so when they say to Jesus, he's just a carpenter, the emphasis is on just. When, when they say he's just a carpenter, they're, they're not just trying to identify his vocation. They're trying to say why he is unfit to be the Messiah. They're trying to say why he is unfit to be a king. And they're throwing some shade on Joseph's in Joseph's direction, because they're saying, there's no way. Even if he's some prodigy, he's, he's been taught by someone else who's also a failure. It can't be. Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Beit Midrash. I try to work this in at least once every year because it's fascinating to me. Every Jewish boy at age six, was studying at the local synagogue under a local rabbi until the age of 10. And they were required to memorize Genesis to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Anybody got that one worked out yet? We can't even get past begat, begat, begat in our Bible reading plan. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had to memorize it. Memorize it. In age 10, they didn't have what it would take. They would tell them to go learn their father's trade. Beit Talmud at age 10, only those with promise, only those with promise could continue on. And during Beit Talmud, there are many things that they would have to do, but one of them is they had to memorize all the remaining books of the Old Testament. Stop it already. It's amazing to me that there was ever any rabbis in the world. All the rest of the Old Testament, memorized, memorized. And then you get to Beit Midrash at 14. So even after they've memorized 
every single book in the old. You would think the testing we've done, if you could do that, surely you have what it takes to be a rabbi. But even then, at the age of 14, you had to make an application after doing everything that you've been doing since the age of six. Since the age of six, you had to apply to become a disciple of the rabbi, being willing to abandon everything. And the question that the rabbi would ask is, is can this kid spread my yoke? So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it meant something 2,000 years ago. A rabbi's yoke was their interpretation of the scriptures. Jesus was saying, they've all got it wrong. Rabbis wanted to recruit these young men who, even after they had died, their interpretation of the law would live on through their disciples, that their yoke would continue to be taught and championed. And then they would say, get, get this, the phrase that they would say to these young disciples is, come and follow me. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Every one of these Jewish boys young adults who all had a trade when Jesus came up to them and said to them, come and follow me. Can you imagine what that meant to them? Can you imagine? Because at some point, some religious leader had told them to go home because they were unfit, because they were unwanted, because they were unsuited for the task at hand. Even Jesus himself. When, when we get to heaven, if the rabbi that failed Jesus out of school is there, do, do you not just want to talk to him? He's, he's going to be like, I've heard it already, right? For that, I know, I get it. I've heard it already. He sent Jesus home. And Joseph, that day, whatever age it happened, when his son came home, Joseph knew exactly what it felt like because he had that same walk of shame. At some point in his life, he was told to go and learn his father's trade. There is a feeling of being unfit that the world can put on us. There is a feeling of being unwanted that the world can put on us. Being unsuited. There's a reason why, again, we're not going to go there for the sake of time. You can always download these notes online. They're there every week for you, the week after the Saturday of our weekly service. In Matthew 21, 23 to 27, you find it, it, it's stated, it's recorded for us, and it it's happens more than once in the Gospels, where the religious leaders ask Jesus this question, by whose authority do you teach? Because authority was passed down from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. You, you didn't have spiritual authority unless a rabbi had given it to you. Unless a rabbi had said to you, come and follow me. So then when they, they say to Jesus, by whose authority do you teach? It was a nice way of them saying, you're a failure. You're, you're unfit. You do not have the right to teach with authority the word of God because no one trained you in it. You can just hear Jesus saying under his breath, I wrote it. John 8, 41. 
In a dialogue that Jesus is having with the religious leaders, the religious leaders make this statement about themselves. If we're not careful, we'll just we'll, we'll push right past this stuff. They say, we're, we're not illegitimate children. Our father is Abraham. You know what they were saying to Jesus? They were saying, we're not going to listen to the teaching of someone who is an illegitimate child. That's what they were saying. When they said, we're, we're not illegitimate children, that, that was their way of saying, you know how people say things like that, right? It's their way of coming at you sideways. They were saying, Jesus, we know your story. We know that your mother was pregnant with you before you were married. We, we know this story that people are telling that she was pregnant from God. Haven't heard that one before. You, you are an illegitimate child and are unfit to be a religious leader for us. Unfit, unwanted, unwelcomed, unsuited. Jesus knows exactly how that feels. Joseph knows exactly how that feels. Tamar knows exactly how that feels. Rahab knows exactly how that feels. Ruth knows exactly how that feels. Bathsheba knows exactly how that feels. Sometimes we've earned it because of things we've done, because of who we are, and then sometimes we don't, like Jesus and Joseph themselves, because there was some cultural norm that defines success. Listen, is there some standard based in cultural norms that defines success and being qualified in such a way that makes you feel unfit. I think we've all been victims of that at some point in our lives. If you were a victim of it right now, can I just tell you one thing that you need? You need the power of the Most High to overshadow you. You, you, you need to find an epischiazzo moment for you. The Lord is always with you. The Word of God will never fail you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow. It was spoken to Mary, but it was spoken to the world in Psalm 91 far before it came from Gabriel. And it's for you. And it's for me. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. When is the last time you felt enveloped by the shadow of the Almighty? When is the last time you felt surrounded by the power of the Most High? When is the last time you were overshadowed by your God? When is the, the last time, as you look back over the story of your life, can you say, I, I, I felt enveloped by the glory of God, lost in his presence, that the power of the Most High overshadowed me. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We've got several minutes here at the end of the service. It's just about 25 after. And this is what I want to encourage you to do tonight. You can do this here. If you're watching from online, some of this, you, 
you might not be able to participate in, but I'm going to explain why I believe it can be just as meaningful for you. But there's a lot of room up here, people. There's a whole lot of room up here. You've just got to decide whether or not you're willing to be a little bit conspicuous. We're okay with being conspicuous. It's part of the City Life way. There's tissues up here if this is an emotional moment for you. But we're just going to invite you as as we worship. If, if, if you're saying tonight, maybe it's not a feeling of being unfit. Maybe it's something else. But you just know, I, I, I want the power of the Most High to overshadow me. Then we're just going to invite you to come and kneel somewhere at this altar. And just as we worship, you're just going to, you're just going to posture yourself in a position and saying, God, I, I, I need this promise in my life. There's going to be a couple of us, Vanessa and I, Chuck and Penny, that if you feel somebody put their hand on your shoulder, it's just one of us agreeing with you in a moment of prayer, just, just praying over you. But we, we just wanted to create this space. Can you, are you with me? We just want to create this space. If you're here and you're saying, Fred, I don't think this message was for me tonight, then I'm going to ask you to stand in the place of being an intercessor. You understand what I'm saying? That you're going to be praying for someone else that's up here. You might not even know them. You might feel the need to extend your hand just from where you're seated, where you are, but just begin to pray for them. God, let it be that the power of the Most High would overshadow them. Father, we pray for every person. If they're, if they're watching online, God, I pray that they, they would change their position, even though they're not in this room, whatever room they're in, we know that the power of the Most High is not bound by time and space. That they would find themselves kneeling in their kitchen. They would find themselves kneeling in their den or in their living room. They're not going to care if somebody from their family comes in and sees them. They're just, they're going to choose to be conspicuous. And I pray that even though they're not in this room and not, and not going to feel one of our hands resting on their shoulder, Jesus, we know that there's a promise that you made to us, that you are with us always, even to the ends of the earth. I pray they would feel a hand on their shoulder. I pray they would feel a physical presence of your, of your hand resting on their shoulder, ministering to them, praying for them as the power of the Most High overshadows them. If that's for you, then I'm just going to invite you to come as we sing and find a place here at this altar.